Victor Joffe QC. Welcome to the Harness Offshore Litigation Podcast. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Very welcome, you. Last time, Victor, that you were on this show, we were discussing lofty uh, Supreme Court matters to do with what's now called the rule in Prudential, Marex and Severe. But this time round, we're going to do something much more interesting, which is to ask you about your career, how you came to become an English silk and now a barrister at Temple Chambers Hong Kong. And I think practitioners around the world and, and certainly young aspiring barristers will be very interesting to know how it's done. Well, if you say so. Yeah. <laughs> You're too modest, Victor. I'm going to have to clearly prod to get you to tell us about yourself. Um, why the bar? Well, actually, originally I wanted to be a solicitor and I... So what went so badly wrong then? Well, I, I had articles arranged with an august <laughs> London firm. Yes. And I went back to university and my tutor called me and he said, Victor, I understand you're planning on becoming a solicitor. And I said, yes. And he said, well, trouble with solicitors is that they spend half of their time on admin and all of their time is controlled by somebody else. Now, if you become a barrister, you're your own boss. Mm. Do what you like. And mm. if you want to go to the park to feed the ducks, you can do that. And I recommend you become a barrister. And I'm so impressed at the idea that I might be able to go to the park and feed the ducks that I changed careers and became a barrister. <laughs> there was a surfeit of fat ducks in the first few years of your practice. <laughs> and actually, a lot of people say that, is that that independence and that, that focus on the law, of course, that sort of clarity of thought that you get at the bar. So you clearly took your tutor's advice. Did you have any thoughts of what area of law you wanted to practice? Well, I was always interested uh, generally in the law. I, I liked its complexities, its intricacies, and the way it constantly developed. But the real inspiration was um, Gower's Company Law. Mm. It's a book that that uh, I think was in the third edition when I was um, at university. And I, I just thought that it was an incredible book and uh, very interesting indeed. I just had this real affinity with company law. And that's really what pushed me towards doing what, uh, what I now principally do and indeed have done for very many years. Mm. And you really focused uh, or become known for unfair prejudice claims. And of course, you're famous for your book, on minority shareholders' rights published by OUP. When did you become as as focused as that, if, if I may say, on, on fair pressure? Or was that, was that an accident? Was that by design? It was by design. I, I, my first few years in practice were not spent in company law, spent largely in property work. And I then did a case in Bromley County Court. Know it well, yes. <laughs> was over three or four inches of land. And one neighbour had built a gutter over the neighbour's land. And uh, I was so depressed by this case over three or four inches of land that I came back to Chambers and I said to my clerk, I'm never doing any more property work. I only want to do company work. And that, that was that was the beginning of it. All. And you taught for a while as well, though. Um, tell us a bit about the teaching and, and how have, has that experience shaped your practice? Well, I, that, that was in the very early days when um, pterodactyls were still flying around. Oh, but before, before the iPhone, in other words? Oh, way, way before the iPhone. Um, but I taught at LSE for a few years mm. at the same time as being in practice. I wound up in the end teaching um, company law at uh, 
undergraduate and graduate levels and teaching tax at uh, graduate level. Mm. It was a very interesting experience. Uh, I met some very good friends, but I wouldn't have said it really had any effect on the practice. And, and indeed, I tried to keep them completely separate. And did you, did you always want to be a lawyer? As long as I can remember, yes. And you must have had mentors or role models in chambers or, or I mean, you mentioned a, a tutor earlier. Who were some of those people? Well, I think actually the tutor was the person who changed my career path. But the two people who were particularly influential as far as my development was concerned, uh, uh, firstly Sam Stamler QC, who was former head of chambers at 106 Court, mm. absolutely brilliant lawyer, brilliant advocate. And he had this ability to express and summarise um, even the most complex points and cases with, with crystal clarity. And I would say I always try to emulate that to express myself as clearly and logically as I can. It doesn't always work, of course, but you know, it's a name. <laughs> and the other person was uh, Lionel Swift QC. Mm. Um, did you know Lionel? Only by reputation. Yeah. Well, he was an outstanding court performer. And I, I first learned how you cross-examine by being led by Lionel. Mm. Um, and he's the kindest and most decent man imaginable. And he taught me a number of things. The importance of always being thoroughly prepared before you go into court. Being fearless in your client's interests and, and particularly if you need to you have to stand up to the judge you can't just roll over he taught me never to give up even though the case may seem not to be going your way mm. and possibly most importantly he taught me to treat everyone you come across clients solicitors other barristers with decency and, and respect and of course when you're a silk you can treat your juniors in the same way mm. yeah. and i think that, that if you ask me who i aspire to be like it would be those two. Very interesting that those two names are so memorable in your career as, as role models and mentors. What about memorable cases, the cases where you've grown the most, to use the modern expression, or shaped your, your thoughts as, as a barrister the most? I think definitely the number one on the list would be a case called Freudiana, which I did in the 1990s. Treasury hold. I, am. I know I don't look it, but I am. Um, oh, sorry. I mean, I, I was supposed to jump in there and say, not at all. You absolutely don't look it, Victor. Thank you. Ian. <laughs> it was an unfair prejudice case concerning a musical about the life mm. and works of Sigmund Freud. And it was essentially a dispute between two protagonists, one of whom claimed to have written the music and one of whom claimed to have written the words. But, and that's essentially what it was about. But there were 365 issues of which we won 364. Wow. It was supposed to last six weeks, but in fact it lasted for 15 months. More, yeah, more than a year, gosh. And I'm glad, as I said, I'm glad to say we won, but my leader was instructed about a month before trial, and I had to write all of his cross-examination for him, which rather sharpened my skills in, in that respect. But after a couple of months, he was disinstructed because he never read any of the files. Oh. And because he, uh, when, when he had my scripts, he would only ask questions which he thought were sufficiently elegant. And so it was causing quite a, quite a lot of aggravation amongst the team because he wasn't cross-examining the way we wanted him to. So he was disinstructed and I had to take over as leader. And this was my Great first... experience, wow. It was my first experience as, as leader. And I had, first of all, just one. And the team expanded as time went on to, to three or four. And uh, so I, I got a dry run at being a leader 
leader, leading a team, doing the cross-exam and doing, doing the advocacy. Um, and I would say it was actually quite defining because I, I, I made two lifelong friends. One was my principal junior and one was my instructing solicitor. And, and the three of us are still very close friends uh, even now. One of the principles of advocacy, uh, one of the ethical principles, is fearlessness before the judiciary, that you shouldn't cower to the judiciary um, at the expense of properly arguing an arguable uh, point on behalf of your, your client. Uh, that doesn't serve justice at all well. Have you had experiences where, where you felt fearful in front of the judiciary and, and not sure how to, how to put a point? Well, when I started out at the bar, I, I practiced in the Chancery Division and most of the judges there were absolutely terrifying. They were so difficult that you, you appeared in front of them in a constant state of fear. Mm. But you had to get used to it. And there was one judge who only communicated with counsel by screaming at them. <laughs> and everybody was terrified of him. Couldn't but... be accused of lack of consistency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <clears throat> I know when you were at the bar in England, went round county courts. Well, mm. I did a lot of that in the early stages. When At a time when county court judges also were just difficult, impossible even to deal with. So that, if you like, hardened me. So as time went on, I sort of acquired the skills of dealing with difficult judges. I think it's a question of experience. And, and, and I know that lots of young barristers are scared, but I think it's almost a sort of a, a rite of passage. You need to sort That's of be, right, yeah. be scared to learn how to do the job properly. But the point you made, I think, is a really valid one. That Sometimes you find that the judge is very anti what you're saying, very rarely personally. But they may dislike your client intensely because of your client's conduct or whatever. And you just have to do the job and mm. say, well, look, judge, this is, this is my case and you have to present it properly. And the last thing you can do is sort of you know, wither and, and, and back off just because the judge doesn't like your client. And now tell me, after those experiences, are there any sort of highs and lows? We, we've all had lows and actually the listeners would probably want to hear about some lows in, in, in such a successful career as yours. And, and how did you ever I would say two things. Firstly, it's always a low when you lose a case. I'm sure like you, I'm, I do the job to win, not mm. to lose. And you overcome it by thinking, well, we can go to the appeal court. And if you win the appeal, it's a high. If you lose the appeal, then you can go to the next highest court. Trouble is, you then come to the roadblock, which is the highest court. And if you lose there, the only way you can overcome it is by telling all your friends just how wrong these stupid judges were. I mean, how could they possibly not accede to your wonderful arguments? Uh, of course, I put my foot in it because there's one case in Hong Kong where I happened to mention that I thought that the learned judges had got it wrong and should be taken out by one of them for lunch. And he said, I hear that you disagreed with our judgment. <laughs> Didn't like to tell him he was deaf to reason argument, but there you are. Well, this is, I, I remember about 10 years ago, Victor, we were discussing the tribunal in the, in the Privy Council. It was just frightening to me that you, you knew them all, though, I and mean, they, they were your uh, your age or pedigree or whatever. And you no, they were them much older. Oh, much, much older. Clearly much older, but you knew them all so well. And that, that's obviously a huge advantage if, if you have been doing the job long enough that you're you know, occasionally having lunch even with the Court of Final Appeal in Hong Kong or, or whatever. Um, 
and clearly that they, they are going to, uh, despite no doubt rebuking you in a jocular fashion o over lunch, that you know that they're going to respect your your views and, and look forward to you appearing in, you appearing in front in front of them in the future. No, actually, Ian, I have to say that the case you've identified, you and I did in the Privy Council, and that demonstrates one of the real difficulties that you sometimes face, where we had a perfectly reasonable argument, yet first of all we were told by the presiding judge that he hadn't read the papers. Mm. He, he made it clear that he didn't think it was worthwhile reading the papers. Mm. But mm. you remember the argument that we presented, which we thought was a very good argument, the judges would not accept it, they wouldn't listen to it. Mm. And whenever we, and we repeated it several times in different ways, whenever we repeated it, there was some sort of point that they, they deflected it away to, to something else. Now, it illustrates, first of all, my point, that you don't shrink from it. You, you have to hit it head on and you have to, Mm. have to deal with it but it also demonstrates what is one of the difficulties of the job that it, it's about persuading judges that your argument is right and sometimes you know judges are people they're not machines and, and mm. if they dislike your argument or your client for whatever reason they can find ways of deflecting it not accepting it and I think a young lawyer needs to recognize that this, that sometimes happens and there's nothing you can really do about it and you know the flip side of that is occasionally you can be extremely lucky and you think how on earth did I get that application you your client seems to be somehow in, in you know in favour just just from the, the sort of broader moral uh, optical test. They're, they're clearly judges are better than that, but you know sometimes it, it works the other way around as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Why did you move to Hong Kong? Well, Ian, the main reason was I heard you were coming here, so you come <laughs> as well. You would have been going somewhere else had you known. <laughs> um, but uh, no, you, as you remember, I used to come here a lot when I was uh, still mm. uh, in England mm. and doing cases here, and I just fell in love with Hong Kong and uh, met some very good friends here and. Uh, that's why I wanted to move to Hong Kong, and it's uh, it's been a great success for me. I've, um, and um, the work here has been extremely interesting. And unlike England, I'm in court almost all the time. Wow! Um, so that is a big difference. Yeah, yeah big difference. And I, I really mm. enjoyed it. And I think it's helped me develop my practice. Mm. Uh, final question, Victor, if I may. Um, what piece of advice, very tricky question, would you give to your younger self coming out of law school, or another way of putting it, how, how would you have done things differently? Okay, well, re remember, times have changed a bit since then. When I started out at the bar, you know, the career was always the most important thing, and your, your personal life was generally sacrificed for the career. And I think these days people are much more work-life balance-orientated. Mm. And I think I would have advised my younger self to achieve more of a balance in that respect. And I think that the other thing that I would have said, and I think it, that, that is actually very good advice today, which is that you have to be prepared for the unexpected. Because, as I mentioned before, thorough preparation is always key to any court case. But however many angles you think you've covered, a judge is always capable of coming up with one yeah. that you haven't yeah, right. considered. And you have to think on your feet. So I think I would say you need to be prepared for the unexpected and enable yourself to have the mental agility to deal with the unexpected. You're such easy company. I feel as if I could um, sit here all afternoon, but I know these podcasts don't quite work like that. So thank you very much for participating in such an interesting podcast. And uh, we hope to see you again very soon. Well, Ian, anytime. time.